Welcome to the Complete Sinner's Guide. My name is Noah. Delighted to be here with you. With me is my host, Tyler Fowler. Tyler, welcome to the program, sir. What is going on, man? How you we doing? are we're going to tear it up and dig into some biblical theology. We have Ross Burns with us. Ross, welcome into the program, sir. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks for taking the time. So uh, I'll, I'll let Tyler do the introduction um, on exactly what we're talking about and and why he invited you to come onto the program. But we're excited to dig in, to learn something, um, and to continue this discussion. Yeah, exactly. So as you guys know, last week we had Chris Date on to talk about conditional immortality slash annihilationism. Um, and, and basically there was a debate that happened um, on YouTube that uh, Ross Burns and Chris Date, um, Ross, actually, uh, you, uh, you, 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 you hold to uh, um, eternal conscious torment, right? And basically what I wanted to do was have the other side come on and to give a defense, answer some questions um, from you guys uh, that you sent in to me on Facebook and see where, you know, see how things go. Because I think that this is an extremely important discussion. I think it's an extremely important topic. And like I was telling these guys just a minute ago, I think that this, this really affects our practical walk with Christ, um, where, where we stand on this issue. And to be honest, I've heard the, I've heard the arguments for conditional immortality. I'm still on the fence. I'm not there yet. Right. So I've got Ross on here to kind of pull me back over, uh, so to say. So what, what's up, man? Like, can you give us just kind of a brief introduction of yourself, right, and your position that you're holding to? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, my name's Ross Burns. I have a uh, apologetics YouTube channel that feel free to check out. It's called the Burns Eye View, where I mostly just deal with, um, yeah, like I like to pick on my secular humanist friends for for the most part, but also get into stuff like uh, the Trinity and uh, other theological objections like that. Um, I'm really trying to get uh, a Mormon to come on. I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to make that happen, but ah, Mormons are just Bro- so polite. Just so call them up, man. Call them up. Invite them <laughs> over. I've done it. I've done it with my wife. We sat down, had a nice three-hour discussion. It was great, right? And just call them up and say, hey, I want a couple missionaries to come over, and they will come to your house. They will. Mm-hmm. Per- amazing evangelist opportunity, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love I love Mormons. Uh, we've had them over our house probably, um, uh, oh, man, I don't know. We've had a couple pairs, one over for probably like four months every week. Then another nice. one for over for like six months every week, but uh, getting them on getting them on my YouTube channel—that's the tough part. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're a little nervous about that. I don't know. I guess a I little, just, yeah, yeah seems suspicious. When the cameras when the cameras start coming out, they're uh, yeah, I get it, dude. So, all right, man. <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about eternal conscious torment. Is it biblical? Why do you hold to it um, primarily? And mm-hmm. what are some of the arguments um, for the position? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, I'm like most evangelical Christians. It's just kind of like what you grew up. Just you knew that like when people die, there's heaven and there's hell. And, uh, you know, people are going to go and have a, an experience of eternal conscious torment. What that really means, like we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, it's just, you know, it's what everybody believes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, growing up, I, uh, I became more and more familiar and aware of people like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists and people like that. I'm like, okay, so there's this weird fringe aspect of, uh, of Christianity or Christendom that doesn't believe in an actual, uh, actual hell. That's probably not how they would phrase it, but uh, that the lost will exist forever. They don't believe in that. I'm like, well, that's weird. So uh, that's kind of that's kind of the only impression I had of, annihilationism or conditional immortality um and that impression kind of lasted up until about uh a couple months ago a few months ago for me where i ended up debating a roman catholic apologist who believed in annihilationism and uh even to that point still not very still not very convincing still not very um you know very heavier in-depth arguments um but it so then i came across a guy named Chris Date. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Chris. Uh, and the uh, Racing Hell Ministry, who you guys had on last week. And all of a sudden, I got exposed to this uh, other aspect of annihilationism, where there's uh, a person who believes in the Sola Scriptura, in the, 
you know, and it has a, a lot of doctrinal similarity to me, not completely, but, um, right. you know, we're very similar to one another. We're both Calvinists. We're both reformed. Um, yeah. so we have a lot in common and, uh, all, all of a sudden I got exposed, like, here's some really, you know, uh, good, really, uh, you know, exegetical arguments for, um, for a, uh, a hell in which doesn't involve conscious torment. I'm like, wow, I really got to dig down here. I really got to think this through. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I guess I want to preface this by saying that this is an in-house debate. This is an, you know, intramural discussion, um, annihilationists like Chris who are evangelicals. I'm more than happy to call them brothers, more than happy to do ministry together with them. So this is an important issue, certainly, but this is not a definitional or essential issue. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think, yeah. I think it's a secondary issue as well. Um, because mm. at the end of the day, you guys believe the same gospel that I do, that Noah does. Right. Mm. And so, yes, I, this is an in-house debate. Um, I've talked to Chris. I honestly, man, I was surprised that Chris was a Calvinist. To be honest, I, I I'm kind of like you. I only heard that it was, you know, like Jehovah's Witness, uh, Seventh Day mm-hmm. Adventist. Um, speaking of which, do most do you know off the top of your head, uh, Ross, if most Seventh Day Adventists be, like believe in annihilationism? Yeah, right? that's Is part that... of the that's part of the deal. That's <laughs> like a okay. You know. The re- reason he's asking that, I actually sent him a message. So I grew up for 14 years as Seventh Day Adventist, and I mm-hmm. um. It was interesting because it wasn't a very prominent thing in our church. I think that maybe once or twice um, somebody made an offhanded reference, um, you know, to the fact that, that people probably burned up. But I think even in, in our local church, they were going back and forth about it. And so I, when you said that, I, I, I sent a message to Tyler and I was like, do most Seventh-day Adventists not believe in, in hell? I, I, I'd not heard that until today. Hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I certainly could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the, like, the official doctrinal stance of uh, Seventh-day Adventistism. <laughs> um, it's certainly not, maybe it's not a emphasis the same way that, uh, you know, worshiping on a Saturday as opposed to a Sunday kind of thing mm-hmm. is, certainly. But, uh, but yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure that's the official doctrinal stance of Seventh-day Adventists, along with, like, soul sleep and... Uh, and investigative judgment and all that, all that kind of stuff. Cool. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Cause we had, um, I don't know, Noah, you might remember, uh, Dakota day. He was, he was a seventh day Adventist that we actually had on here. And I debated him on perseverance of the saints. And so we had talked about that cause we had talked a little bit before and we had talked about that and that, uh, that subject had gotten brought up and he believed that, uh, is soul sleep as well. And, um, uh, annihilationism too so i don't know i'll put it like this i didn't honestly know a dude i didn't know that about you um that you spent 14 years so what what are you or what are you now what how do you <laughs> self-identify now uh no um what what denomination of a church do you go to now Noah? so I, I i i don't attend a denominational church and and part of that okay. is i i really dislike the concept of um of eliminating nuance Right. The the truth is, like, I think there are, I think there are really devout Christians in all forms and all, in all churches, and I think that we have lost track and lost sight of what we really are supposed to be focusing on, um, and so and and so I I I have kind of gotten away from of saying here's my you know statement to faith i might have a personal one i could write that out and you and i have to have, have talked at length about that but yeah. there, there's no one church that would say whatever this church believes that's i will just blanketly sign up and agree with them right right now we all got our own individual little uh little tweaks that we have i think anyway i uh, chris asked me or no 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 it wasn't chris i forget who it was um, but I basically said, I'm a mutt whenever it comes to my theology. I believe a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, I'm not a strict Calvinist. I'm not a strict, I'm definitely not an Arminian. Um, but yeah, I, I got a little bit of everything <laughs> going on for me. But so I'm sure it kind of, you know, refutes itself somewhere in there, but I'm trying to figure that out. You know what I mean? Uh, so anyway, uh, Ross, go continue, man. We didn't mean to get off track there <laughs> a little bit. Uh, no, but, no, but I continue. appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So. I know, I, or at least I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but a majority 
of church fathers um, from Clement of Rome, uh, Ignatius. I know uh, Chris brought up on on your guys's debate, um, you know Barnabas, the, these different things, and but for the majority of church history, eternal conscious torment has been the majority view, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, that's a big, one of the big reasons that I'm very uncomfortable, uh, uh, you know, branching out. Oh, so I should, I should maybe add one more small preface. So this yeah. is not a hill that I'm, I'm willing to die on. I am willing yeah. to be convinced of this. I just am not yet. And so, uh, I think the default position for a Christian on this issue should be the eternal conscious torment just because of the historical consensus that has existed, um, you know, from the, uh, not from the very early church. So you, you brought up guys like Clement of Rome or Ignatius. Um, right. those, those would, uh, Chris is very convinced that they are annihilationists. I'm not, mm-hmm. I think that they're more ambiguous on it. Um, but certainly when you get into the later second century, you've got guys like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, who are very much on the eternal conscious torment train. But after uh, Augustine onward through the Reformation, through the medieval period, it's, it's eternal conscious torment t-shirts uh, being sold at the sporting events <laughs> and not really, not really a whole lot else. Right, right, right. And, and I know exactly what you mean um, whenever you say that, you know, Barnabas, for example, speaks of eternal hell uh, or, or eternal fire. Um, and, and you're right, they are... They're very ambiguous. I'm not convinced. I've I've looked at the quotes, and I'm not convinced either that they were strict on annihilationists. Um, I don't. And and again, this is my opinion. I, I'm like you, dude. This is. And again, I I saw that in the debate, which is why I was like, man, I gotta have this guy on. We're we're <laughs> so much alike whenever it comes to this. Um, so I'm willing to be swayed. I guess. I again, I'm just not yet. Um, mm-hmm. so let me ask you this, uh, Ross. What is, is it just the, the historical, I mean, the giants, the, the, we, you know, the shoulders that we stand on, right? Is it that that's holding you back or let's, let's kind of dive into biblical. What Mm -hmm. is holding you here at eternal conscious torment, um, biblically? Yeah, certainly the historical uh, uh, context and all that, but, um, also biblically. So, uh, my kind of thinking is that we have, uh, if we're trying to do systematic theology, if we're trying to make a systematic theology of the biblical doctrine of eschatology and hell and what's that like, uh, we've got all these texts that we have to figure out how to fit together. Because um, I'm I'm an inerrantist. I believe that uh, God inspired His Word and He didn't make any mistakes. Um, and uh, I mean, so and so does Chris Date as well, and so do many evangelical annihilationists. Randall Rouser accepted, um, but. So we have all these texts, and texts that say stuff like, uh, oh dear, that they will perish, the lost will perish, they'll die, they'll be destroyed, they'll be consumed, they'll be no more, they'll be slain, they'll have both body and soul killed in hell. Um, so you've got all those texts like that, which uh, you know would lend itself, I think, to either position. But then you also have texts, uh, especially like that in Revelation, in Revelation 14 and Revelation 20, which really seem to suggest that there's this conscious existence that goes on um, eternally for the lost, that they'll experience torment and, uh, and that's such a thing. So my task as a, as an evangelical reformed Christian is to figure out how do we fit, how do we fit those two things together? Um, How do we understand what it means to be destroyed and to be killed Uh, And also, how do we understand what it means for the lost to be tormented um, consciously as as part of their final judgment? And the way that I understand them is to harmonize them to mean that for a human being to be destroyed, I don't think that means that they stop existing or that they're no longer conscious. Uh, I think in maybe Jesus's parable of Lazarus and the rich man would be a good example of uh, death not meaning cessation of existence. death not meaning um, cessation of consciousness even. Mm -hmm. So I think when we take all of those things together, the best kind of harmonization that we can offer is one of eternal conscious torment, which is what the Bible I think means by destruction and death. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the systematic theology, the biblical understanding that I've, I've come to and, uh, 
that I'm still still haven't been swayed to yeah. uh, leave. Right, right. So let me ask you this then: Do you believe that there's a conscious intermediate, excuse me, intermediate state uh, right now where the dead go? Um, how, how do you think that that plays out uh, practically? Yeah, I I do expect that. Um, okay. I think that there is a conscious intermediary state um, where both the uh, the unsaved lost and the righteous will be consciously, I think, uh, not the same place, certainly. Uh, the right. righteous will be, I think, in a place called paradise uh, with mm-hmm. the Lord, is as the Apostle Paul describes it. So that sounds really good. It, it's, it sounds pretty great to me. But for the lost, I think the most explicit example we have is in the parable or story. It's kind of, it's kind of tough to tell of the rich man Lazarus that Jesus tells in Luke 16. But also we can look to, um, it seems like at the Mount of Transfiguration, we've got some Old Testament saints who are conscious, who are there. Um, And then maybe for one last example, we have Saul going to the witch in Endor and asking to to go and see his buddy Samuel. Samuel is existing. You know, he's, he's there. He's conscious. So I think the biblical evidence is much stronger and supportive and, conscious intermediary state where torment and bliss is going on for the loss and saved respectively. Yeah. Now in my research of, of, you know, Jewish thought that that's basically been my main focus for the last couple months, um, is Jewish thought. And now I don't know if this was a sect that thought this, or if this was just the majority view within Judaism, but and, and and Ross, I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, probably if you if you spent any amount of time in this, um, but that Sheol slash Hades was actually split up into two or more compartments. Right? We believe, or well, at least what I've heard is that some people believe that the wicked went to a torment side. The, well, exactly like what Jesus is, Jesus describes in the parable or or historical um, event of the rich man Lazarus. Right. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes to the lake of fire, or, or I'm sorry, um, Hades, right? And we see torment. So even if it's not, and we both, you know, we said this earlier, that the Jews, play, they, they painted uh, with word pictures, right? Mm-hmm. They were, I believe, they were masterminds of, you know, poetry, uh, you know, to be able to get a, a, a vision, you know, in our head uh, that we can see. And so even if it's not literally this is how it's going to be, I think, you know, it could be argued that if it's not exactly like that, it's something close. Why the detail of, uh, of the parable? Why, what, what, is the, what, is, what is Jesus trying to teach here, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why all of this? Um, so just out of curiosity, man, and, and I mean, I guess if you don't want to answer, you don't have to, but how do you view the parable? Is it a parable or is it a historical event? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly arguments arguments to be made on both sides. Uh, the, I mean, the use of the use of um, a, a name like Lazarus doesn't appear in the other parables. Usually, it's just like this, uh, you know, a farmer and his and his buddies, or a master and his servants. Just right. something kind of very vague that people can identify with. Uh, so, I, uh, you know, I'm not really sure one way or the other, but. Uh, even if it is a parable, which if, if this is an actual historical story, then, you know, that, I mean, that certainly favors the, you know, the intermediary state side of things. But even if it's a parable, Jesus's parables uh, don't use, if you look at all of Jesus's parables, especially in Luke, they don't use things that don't exist. You know, they're not using mythology. They're always using things that people would recognize and identify with and understand. So I, I don't see, it seems very difficult for me to believe that Jesus is, uh, you know, utilizing mythology here. something that is, um, you know, a, a false eschatology that Jesus is utilizing. Seems, seems like a stretch to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you did bring up some texts. Um, let's, let's go into some of those more, well, I think, you know, Matthew 10, 28, uh, for example, it says, do not be afraid, uh, Jesus is speaking, he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, 
so how would you interpret that? Um, I know you talked about we need to understand how how the Jews are using the words destroy, um, especially mm-hmm. Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, right? How how is this being interpreted by his readers, um, in your opinion, uh, Ross? And then I've got a question. Actually, Chris, um, who we've been talking about this whole time, uh, <laughs> he sent me a couple questions um, for you. So I want to go, um, and I know one of them has to do with this. So while you're explaining that, I'm going to find this. And then, uh, so yeah, man, go. Uh, how would you interpret that? Yeah, so uh, definitely Matthew ten twenty eight has to be included in your, uh, you know, in the verses that you would use for your systematic theology on eschatology. It's got to be there. So I think it's very clear that Jesus is teaching that both body and soul will be destroyed in hell, uh, in Gehenna even, not, not the intermediary state Hades, but in Gehenna. They will both be destroyed uh, as opposed to just the body is going to be, can be, can be killed here. The question for me is, what does it mean to, for a body and a soul to be destroyed or killed in hell? What, is, what does that mean? Um, and I think that's the question. So from my perspective, what it means for that to happen doesn't mean that uh, the lost person stops existing. Because, again, I can't harmonize that with other texts that seem to indicate that they will continue to consciously exist. So, uh, so I think it kind of, if my annihilationist friends were to use that text for me, I, th- I think it kind of just begs the question. Um, because, well, what biblically does it mean for a human being to have their body and soul destroyed in hell? Does that mean it's, uh, it's undergoing this eternal punishment, that it's, um, what does it mean for a body and soul to be destroyed in hell? I think C.S. Lewis gives a really good kind of uh, counter analogy to this that kind of helps me think of that. So I think it's in the problem of pain. Um, I, I'm not, not positive of that, but I think it's in the problem of pain. He talks about, well, what happens if you destroy wood? Uh, what you get is something that exists afterward. You get smoke, you get heat, you get ash, you get all these things. So it's not so much that the wood stops existing after it's destroyed by fire. It's just that it, co- it becomes something else. And so C.S. Lewis really has this view of when human beings are destroyed um, in the, in hellfire for, to utilize the metaphor, uh, they become something else. Now what that something else is, is very difficult for us to understand. I have my speculative theories. I have my, my guesses, but uh, I don't think that we can understand that to mean cessation of existence. So it's like they, they change their state, though. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way of looking at it. Um, okay. So they went from being one thing whenever they're, they're thrown in, or, or however this, you know, this torment works, whether it's a lake of fire, whether people are burning forever or not, right? Torture forever is horrible. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, that, that's, a, mm-hmm. that's a bad thing. I actually asked, I was working with a couple guys yesterday, and I actually asked them, I said, hey, question just real quick. Would you rather cease to exist or be tormented forever? And they said cease to exist. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, so I'm not going to, and, and J.D. Martin, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, uh, Ross, but me and him actually had this conversation, and he, if I'm remembering right, he debated Chris as well. Um, and, and, and he thinks that, you know, and I do too, I do believe that a cessation of existence would be an eternal punishment. And and, and I believe Chris thinks that way too. Right. Mm -hmm. So I do see that as a, as if, if God wanted to, you know, completely eliminate evil. And I mean that in a cessation of existence way, um, he's perfectly just righteous, you know, and able to do that. Right. Um, so but is that what we see, or is that just speculation, right? Um, so Chris actually said in Matthew ten twenty eight, um, he asks this. He says, Jesus indicates God will destroy, and he uses the Greek word apollomai, both body and soul in Gehenna. The word is in the active Greek voice, and is a transitive, or and is transitive to describe what one personal agent does to another, and throughout the Synoptic Gospels. When used this way, the word means slay or kill. For example, Herod wants to de- Herod wants to kill Apollomai the baby Jesus, and the Pharisees want to kill Apollomai Jesus. Doesn't Matthew ten twenty eight therefore indicate that God will slay both body and soul in Gehenna? And if the body being slain means it is rendered lifeless, inactive, inert, inanimate, doesn't that mean 
that's what will happen to the soul in Gehenna too. That was long. Yeah. Do you want me to read that again? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've got the question to my head. Yeah. So, um, so, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very Chris Date kind of question. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, God he never has... love him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he never has easy questions. Like, no. you know, oh, man. But, uh, oh, man, we really have to get him on, like, you know, those, uh, those like, CNN town hall kind of things that they have? Crossfire. Yeah, we can yeah. have biblical crossfire. There you go. <laughs> biblical crossfire. Oh, man. Oh, man, yeah, that'd be fun. But, um, <laughs> so to answer... The, uh, to answer his question, uh, so he brought up that uh, apolemy means to means to kill, means to slay, uh, just the same way that Herod wants to apolemy the baby Jesus, or the Pharisees wants to do the same Jesus. Um, the, the the difference would be that this is a, a very different context. I think that Jesus is using this as an analogy to describe what's going to happen in Gehenna and why you should fear God more than the Pharisees or Herod. So I think he's using a, uh, like a lesser to greater argument. So what, what the, I think it's fair to say that what can happen here on earth is analogous to what will happen in Gehenna. Uh, However, what happens here when, if, if I was to go to the grocery store today and, and get shot, that doesn't mean that I stop existing or that my right. consciousness ceases as well. So I believe firmly in the intermediary state. So if the first death that we'll experience doesn't mean that we stop existing or that we're no longer conscious, then why would the second death mean that as well? Sure. Kind of what I'm sure. No, I agree. I mean, Jesus as a human, as God, as the God man, Jesus died. Right, but Jesus did not cease to exist. God did not stop stop existing. He's self existent. He cannot do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so no, I agree a hundred percent. Just because it means to kill, just it means to you know, because destroy is not here. It, Chris laid it out clearly. It means to slay or kill. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I guess what we is kind of like what we were saying earlier too. It all depends on what that means. We because anybody, if we were to ask anybody, even Chris. Um, it, does kill mean cease to exist? I would think he would say no, right? Um, uh, but in, well, I don't want to speak for Chris on that. Yeah, but, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. But I, if uh, I had to... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I was going to say, we need to get him on here. I mean, because if... I, I wish... I wish we were live, to be honest, um, so he could just call in and, like, jump on and be like, hey, all right, look, this is what I believe. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, okay, so... No, I agree though, man. I think I do agree with you. I think it depends on what what does this word mean? What does Apollonite how do they how did the Jews understand this? Because again, mm-hmm. Matthew is writing to a group of Jews. I mean, there there's so much there's so much Judaism in the Gospel of Matthew, and we have to sort that out. We have to understand mm-hmm. how they would understand it. Um so let's go let's go to Revelation. Um because I think this is clear. I think it's even and so here's my kind of, and this is just my speculation, so take it with a grain of salt. Right. But I kind of am on the, I don't believe in soul sleep. I don't think that we, whenever we die, we wake up and the, the, the resurrections happen. No, I think we, I think believers go to be with the Lord, and I think that the wicked go to Hades and, 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 and are, are tormented there. So now I wouldn't have a problem, and now again, this is just Tylerism, if you want to call it that. Um <laughs> But I wouldn't have a problem with God, you know, obviously, yeah, I'm going to tell God what to do. But, you know, if he would annihilate them, you know, after, after the fact, after they're tormented for however long, you know, because Josh, Josh Davidson, I was actually talking about this. And Ross, let me get your opinion on it, too. Mm -hmm. Do you think that God can show the wicked mercy in the final state? Uh, I think he certainly. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Okay. I think he certainly could show them mercy. I just don't think that there's any scriptural indication that he will show them mercy. It sounds like that uh, Gehenna is a place where mercy is long past in the rear view, and it's only wrath that you get from God. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. You're good. Um, um. Actually, I do want to push back on that a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. Um, sure. Again, I'm not. I'm not. I'm. Let me play devil's advocate. Let me put it like that. I guess. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, 
But Revelation, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Rev, doesn't Revelation 21, and, and I, again, I'd have to look it up, um, say something about God getting rid of evil um, forever? It, isn't that language there? Um, let, let me, yeah. If you know where I'm talking about, dude, that'd be great. But Yeah, I'm looking at Revelation 21 right now. Okay. Um. Oh yeah, uh, twenty-one four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, oh, okay. and death will not exist anymore. No, uh, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the former things have ceased to exist. I think that's a very interesting word. I'm I'm reading out of the NET. Um, that's a very yeah. interesting word there. Um, cease to exist. That's exactly what we're talking about. So death, death will not exist anymore. Or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the former things have ceased to exist. To me, that seems just as plain as Revelation 20 saying that the devil and the false prophet and the beast are going to burn forever. You know what I mean? Or it says it are, are tormented forever day and night, right? So what? Can, how do we reconcile these two things? Because do well, you see, does that make sense? I see what you're saying. The only issue is that Revelation yeah. 21, that section 1 through 4 and going on, is uh, talking only about the new heavens and the new earth. It's... The New Jerusalem is coming down out of out of heaven, and then uh, and then uh, who's speaking here? Is this? I guess this is is this an angel or John? I'm not sure. Is uh, a loud describe- voice uh, from the from the throne? Oh, okay. Saying- well, a loud voice from the throne. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And then He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. So this is specifically talking about the the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven so i don't think you can broaden that out to uh the previous context so i i would have yeah i just wouldn't see the the exegetical argument from that passage but uh sure but i I think i understand what you're saying though yeah yeah i mean because i guess the point that i'm making is this that within the new heavens and the new earth because i do believe that that's going to be a time where god reigns uh physically with his people, mm-hmm. right? The 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 um the saved are raised bodily um, yes. to 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 enjoy immortality, to enjoy being with God forever, right? And yes, for those people, there is no more pain, there is no more death, there is no more crying, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, I guess it would seem to me because the way so I'm going to try to paint a word picture like the Jews, right? And, yeah. and kind of let you know what's going on in my head a little bit. Um, so the way I see it is this. Is that yes? In that, what whatever that looks like, whatever eternity looks like, I don't know if we can really say what eternity is it. Is it a constant now? Is it is there past, present, future? What is it? You know, I mm-hmm. don't think we know. Um, but whatever that whatever that state is like, there in that state is no death, no pain, no crying. Right. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is there then a different place or state or however you want to word that where there is people crying where there is people being tormented agonizing you know what i mean because in one state it seems and again if i'm confusing you bro i am sorry (laughs) but um i'm following i'm following okay 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 good so in one state there is no more death there's no such thing as death that was a former thing all of these you know i'm making all things new all things right is new Mm -hmm. And with life and 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 happiness and just ah, oh, it's it, it's it's bliss, right? And in that state, there is none of that death crying. So where are these people being tormented at? If that does, if death has not ceased to exist, actually. Well, so if you read the text a little bit further on, uh, yeah, yeah. So we we read verse four, and then mm-hmm. verse five through six, and. Uh, then seven, that he's he even goes on to say even cooler things. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the yeah. water of life without payment. So then, all that's kind of wrapped up into verse seven. And then here's this declaration: To uh, the one who conquers, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So then, all of that that we've just talked about is the heritage of uh, heritage of the believer, right? The mm-hmm. one who endures and then in verse eight here's this sharp contrast but as for the cowardly the faithless the detestable as for murderers the sexually immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death right so i would i would see the sharp contrast there that 
all of these really good promises, this uh, the stuff that we can look forward to that we just have a, a tough time even thinking about what it means. Like, is this is this just the constant now or past, present, future? All of that is applied strictly to believers. And then a sharp contrast is drawn between verses seven and eight, where all the not happy is uh, delegated to the cowardly, faithless, et cetera, et cetera. So I would be pretty comfortable in my exegesis with uh, that verse four only applying to the new heavens and new earth and not really have any, anything to do with uh, what's going on in Gehenna. Okay. So I guess then the question that I would have is, what is your definition of life? Mm-hmm. Because we're looking for the contrast to that, right? Right. Yeah, okay. that's a very good, very good question. So mm-hmm. my definition of life would not simply be sachet, uh, the uh, existence or consciousness isn't just life. Sure. Um, I don't think uh, the, I don't see anywhere in scripture. And I think this is a point where I would maybe differ in my language from the uh, historic language utilized of eternal conscious torment. Okay. So a lot of times you'll read and uh, a lot of times you'll read with those in those on my side where they'll say that the, the lost will be immortal forever. You're going to live forever. It's just, just a matter of where, where are you going to live forever? Everybody is immortal. It's just where are you going to spend eternity? That kind of thing. I don't think that's biblical language. I think uh, it took, it took a very sharp annihilation just to point that out to me. Like, Oh, you, you know what? The Bible never really says that the lost who will be in Gehenna forever are alive or immortal. So I don't think we can use those terms to apply just to existence or consciousness. I think they're um, maybe we could say that they're qualitative statements. Maybe we can say that uh, we will have eternal life in the new heaven and new earth in a similar to way, in a similar uh, way to the way we have eternal life now. That eternal life really means living as we were ought in the Garden of Eden with a vibrant and living relationship with God. Um, right. So I would define life not as existence or consciousness, but as um, existing how we were supposed to, maybe. Sure. And see, I, I like that you bring that up because whenever whenever we go back to Genesis, right, the first couple chapters, is that when was the first animal slain? It was after the fact that sin had already entered the world, right? Mm-hmm. And I I think, you know, looking back on that, to see, to see what the future state's going to, going to if, I can, if I can interpret that, you know, if I can formulate that or wrap my head around it, I think it would be a contrast to what we're living now, right? What, I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think our our existence now is a a poor analogy to what we will be experiencing then um, yeah. in the new heavens and new earth. Yeah, like Paul says, I mean, we see in a dimly lit mirror, you know, and what we are to become, we can't even fathom it. I mean, really, mm-hmm. um, we're to become like God. And if I, I can't wrap my hand around it, uh, to be yeah. perfectly honest. So, so no, I, I get what you're saying, though, I think, is that it's not... It's the quality of the life that's being contrasted versus the existence, non-existence aspect of life, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's basically what I'm saying. Just uh, very well summarized. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay, uh, <laughs> Noah, man, we're 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 running. Uh, uh, we're running out of time. <laughs> yeah, we're down down to about 13 minutes. You know, I'll I'll jump in. I'll yeah. just add this. Um, do we all agree that the antithesis of of life is is death and that that is what is referred to by hell because i i've said before i'll say again i believe that hell is really more about eternal separation from god more so than it is just eternal death Mm, yeah i think uh I don't know if we mean the same things by what you said but we can definitely high five on that statement (laughs) but Yeah. yeah i'm I'm happy to high five on that. I, I, yeah. I guess to elaborate a little bit more, what I would say is that yeah, yeah. in death, that causes eternal separation from God because obviously you cannot be with God if one is dead. Yeah, I, I would so, certainly agree with what you're saying. Let me ask this then, Noah. Can you be separated from God and yet exist? Can you be separated from God and yet exist? 
Yes. Yes. Can I, something I, that is existing right now be separated from God? Yes, I would argue that Satan has separated himself from God. Ross, what do you think? Yeah, I, that was a really good question that I'm uh, I'm going to write down and use in the future. Can you be separated from God uh, but still exist? I think that's. Um, uh, I hope you don't mind if I steal that question. No, steal it, dude. It's that's for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> if it helps, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm trying to dig to the truth, and and yeah, yeah, write it down. But uh, okay, so but how would you answer that question? Oh, <laughs> sorry. You. No, no, you're good. <laughs> you're good. I guess he, he's like, I no, I got to write this thing down, man. I can't forget this. Like, this is good. <laughs> No, so I would certainly agree that you can be separated from God, that there's internal separation from God, and that uh, you can still exist. Um, And that's kind of, if I had to speculate about what it will be like in hell, uh, what it will be like in the final state for the loss, I would, uh, there are some some texts that I would point to as maybe an inclination of what what we could expect. Romans 1 talks about how in God's judgment for for unrighteous man, he has given them over to the, the corrupt desires of their heart, um, where he's removed his hand of restraint, and they're just given over to all manners of perversion. And uh, maybe another text we could look at, it's a slight clue, is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's judgment in Daniel chapter 4, what happens to him uh, as he loses all his rationality, and he becomes more akin to a beast uh, on all fours, just kind of roaming around for, for uh, eating like cattle. So it, this loss of rationality is part of God's judgment. And uh, so if I had to guess, I think that's what I would expect from, uh, from a conscious lost person in hell, where God just removes his hand of restraint, where human beings become as bad, as irrational, as selfish as they possibly could be, and uh, that's their sentence. To just everything good about human beings now is no longer there, and we're like monsters. We're just as the the most evil human being that you can think of is what we'll be like all the time. But that's admittedly speculative. Right, right. I agree. Um, I something just popped into my head, and it's from Chris again. And and no, he didn't text it to me. He just, I just, uh, I thought of it. So Ross, I let me ask you this, and and our, you know as time winds down and I hate it, man, because a good conversation always goes so quick. So yeah. we're going to have to have you back, dude. Um, one of these, one of these days soon, uh, to, to really, to really dig in because there's so many, there's so many more, there's so much more to go to say that an hour just doesn't cover it. So if you'd come back, dude, that would be, we would love to have you. Um, yeah. I'd love to come I, back. I, lo- I love this, man. This is awesome. So let me ask this real quick before we run out of time. Mm-hmm. If, if eternal conscious torment is true, is God's wrath, is God's, God's justice, is the things that make God God ever truly satisfied? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I think it could only be satisfied if it's a everlasting torment, uh, because I don't think there's ever an amount that a human being could suffer in terms of years that would satisfy an infinite death. So there's no amount of suffering that could ever satisfy it so therefore it has to be an infinite one um so so let me let me ask this Mm -hmm. did jesus's death satisfy the infinite wrath of god yes because he was the god man i think okay so it, it couldn't have just been it couldn't have been judas you know judas's death couldn't have satisfied or peter or i think even uh the, the most righteous man that you can find in scripture, which, I mean, to be honest with you, they're few and far between, but uh, mm-hmm. maybe, yeah. you know, um, Abraham or, or David or Job, none of those people could have, could have been um, satisfied. So I think it had to be the God man because he's the only infinite sacrifice that could have been brought forth. Right, right. No, and I guess, and yes, we we can separate Jesus's human nature from his divine nature. We can, we can talk about it. We can do that. But ultimately we can't because within the one man that is Jesus, there are two natures, divine and human, right? Kind of like within the one being that is the Trinity, there are three Mm -hmm. distinct persons. So yeah, but so we can't, we can, but we can't. 
And yes, I would say, because correct me if I'm wrong, Ross, but wasn't this a debate in the early church that could God die? Could Jesus die? And this is where we, we they talked about, you know, his human nature and where we really get the hypostatic union from. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I know the Council of Chalcedon really, you know, mm-hmm. definitively defined. Well, that was a that was a stupid phrase. That <laughs> really was, defined. That, you're speaking all... Greek and English, dude. That's exactly <laughs> what just happened. Oh man, yeah, that was silly. But anyway, so the Council of Chalcedon is the one that really you know nailed down and defined how we could think about the two natures of Christ. But I wasn't aware that it was over the question: Could God? Uh, can God die? No, uh, and I. And again, I don't think it is. Um, that's just, I, I could be way off there. Um, but I think they were debating um, Nestorianism, wasn't it? Oh, okay. And, and something else? Mm-hmm, yeah, um, yeah. Nestorianism is definitely condemned. Uh, although there's definitely a lot of debate as to what Nestorianism actually is. Right, uh, right. Nestorius didn't believe in Nestorianism. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, let me, let's, ah, oh, man. Noah, how much longer do we have, dude? Uh, about eight minutes, or excuse me, six oh. minutes. Okay, we've got time. We've got time. Let, let me get to Josh's questions real quick, Ross. Uh, he's, yeah. The first one is, do humans have souls that are distinct from their own body's consciousness? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a tough question. I don't think we have um, scripturally a clean way of divorcing the two. I think I'm a dualist, so uh, yeah. I believe that human beings are material and immaterial that we have both aspects and i think certainly what happens to our body affects how we are thinking certainly um you know if if i get brain damage it's going to affect the way that i can uh that i can think in the future so i don't know that you could say that the human soul is completely distinct from uh that I don't know that I would use the phrase body's consciousness, but I think I know what he's meaning from the, the brain's activity as it relates to consciousness. Yeah. I don't know that you can really make them distinct. So I hope that doesn't, hope that doesn't ruin okay. his other question. No, 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 that actually, that's great. That's great. Because he's, he says this, he says, if that soul, okay. So you believe then that the soul, if we can talk about it distinct from the body for a sec, is that soul immortal? Yeah, so I wouldn't phrase it that way. Uh, okay, I know okay. if you get into like Platonism and that kind of, that's kind of the language that yeah. they would use. And uh, sure. a lot of church fathers had utilized that kind of terminology. But biblically, yes. there's nothing about the soul being immortal. Immortality right. is a thing that's given to um, given to believers and not given to the lost. However, I still don't think that uh, the loss of immortality means the loss of existence. I don't think sure. that those are biblical categories. Okay. Okay. Because, okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, thank you, uh, for clearing that up too, because the first time I'd heard that, I really stopped and think, thought, and it was in the philosophy class, right? I was like, he said, um, that the immortality of the soul is a platonic idea and, and, and something that Plato talked about. Um, and it's not found really in the Bible. So again, thank you, uh, for clearing that up. He said, uh, Josh, um, goes on to say this, if the body or if that soul is intrinsically immortal, and I know you wouldn't use that definition, but, mm-hmm. but I'm just reading what he said. Why is the body not? So uh, I guess what yeah. he's asking, if the soul, I mean, because we both believe that the soul can die, right? It just, mm-hmm. we, we I, I mean, it just depends on what that definition is of die, right? Right, um, yeah. So I guess I would phrase that is, can we expect a similar death of the soul that we see the body experience. Um, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to, it's difficult to say exactly what that'll look like. I'm actually yeah. uh, a little agnostic or I like the, I like the terminology principled ambiguity. It's something I hold about whether uh, human beings will be embodied in, in hell in Gehenna, um, okay. which is, I, I think maybe a, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a disagreement with the historical church on this issue, but I see in Revelation that the lost will be resurrected bodily, and then they'll be condemned into hell, where Matthew even says uh, both body and soul will be destroyed. So can we call that existence bodily existence? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure if there's not a third category that we, that we don't have um, access to because of our current experience, 
if it's going to be something else. So, yeah, I would say that's mostly we're not really told, I think, what to expect from what a destroyed body and soul in hell will actually be like or look like. Right, because see... Go go ahead, sorry. Other than just it will continue to exist, uh, that there will be conscious existence. Sure. Yeah, the way I heard it phrased to me, we actually, um, one of... One time the pastor wasn't at our church, and uh, we had a uh, uh, somebody come up and you know do it and fill a uh, spot. And he gave a sermon on death. You know, the, basically the summarization of it was this: that death is the first time that the soul and the body split, right? And I don't know if you could use that terminology exactly, but again, I'm paraphrasing this, summarized. Um, but basically, death was never meant to be. Whenever God created Adam. Right, and, I, I, and I'm not comfortable saying he didn't expect Adam to die. God knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's omniscient. Um, he knew that. But that was not the original intention. Death was not in the, in the plan, I don't think. You know, if Adam would have never ate, is what I'm saying. Um, so, with that being introduced... Noah, you want to say something real quick? Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Okay. Okay, okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I guess just real quick then... Whenever death um, was pronounced upon Adam, that's the first time that that happens, and that's you know at death, that's whenever the soul and the body uh, split. But no, man. Uh, regardless of that, that's speculation. We can edit. <laughs> but Ross, dude, <laughs> thank you. No, man, thank you for coming on for real um, and, and explaining this a little bit more. Again, I Chris inspired me to. You've just inspired me to do it again to really study this topic right because again it's a secondary issue yes this is an in-house debate it really is the reason that i can call these guys brothers is that they believe the same gospel that i do that christ was died for sins that he rose from the grave right we're hashing out these technicalities but at the end of the day we're brothers and sisters in christ and we love each other there isn't nothing i wouldn't do you know for noah ross or chris right or josh or anybody um so I, I again, man, thank you for coming on and and hashing this out, you know, with me, and, and and thanks for answering Chris's questions because they're good, man. They they're really good, and 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 you did a great job, dude. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate the the invitation and the really good questions, and yeah, um, yeah I mean, you guys were very gracious and brotherly, so I really appreciate that. I was happy to yeah. be here. We'll uh, we'll have to get both you and Chris back on a future episode. This is an exciting topic and something that I think is worth digging into further. Obviously, I think both you and Chris have kind of outpaced Tyler and myself, um, but that's good. That's okay, because it's good to get you guys involved. So that'll do it for this episode. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Complete Sinner's Guide. See ya.